Did you know that 70% of patients with medically unexplained symptoms are women? And less than 8% of Canada's national funding goes to women's health research? From research to treatment options to accessing services and programs, it's clear that our current healthcare system does not work for everyone. Women, especially those from equity-seeking communities, are overlooked and underserved because healthcare has traditionally not considered the impact of sex and gender differences. Well, welcome to The Health Gap and to our new podcast series, Mind the Health Gap, a podcast from Women's College Hospital Foundation that brings experts together to discuss the gender gaps that exist in our healthcare system ranging from gaps in gender-specific research to information to care, which all have an impact on health and the lives of women. We discuss it and we discuss what we can do about it so we're all better informed and empowered. My name is Jennifer Bernard and I will be your host today. Today, we talk about the need for gender and race-specific research in healthcare and the steps we can take to close the gap in making healthcare accessible and equitable for all. And we are joined by Heather McPherson and later in the program, Dr. Aisha Lofters. Heather is president and CEO of Women's College Hospital in Toronto, Canada's first and only fully independent hospital dedicated to women's health and equity. Heather herself is a fierce advocate and leader in women's health equity. Welcome, Heather. We're so pleased to have you here as our first guest. So we know all of us were part of the healthcare system as whether we work in it or not that the healthcare system doesn't always work the same for everyone. And that goes from like everything from research to how you, you know, show up with your family doctor and how that interaction is. But for women and particularly people from equity seeking groups and communities, um, they're really underserved, really overlooked in many ways. And we at Women's call this the gap, the healthcare gap. Let's start with what is the gap and how do these inequities show up? So it's from the very beginning that the gap starts out. So it, you know, when we think about research, for example, up until not that long ago, actually, until the 1990s, actually, women were not routinely included in drug studies and research at all. Um, And so when we think of that and we think of all the treatments that are available for people, women are just not represented. I always think of a good example myself is around um, cardiac disease where women, in fact, are more likely, in fact, 30% more likely to die of heart disease. But given um, the signs of heart disease were never studied, so women present very differently. The treatments for heart disease were never tested in women. Women aren't offered cardiac rehab in the same way that men are. All uh, shows and demonstrates that this is a terrible situation for women if you have heart disease. So Heather, you've said so many important points. First of all, I would say that most People do not realize that cardiac issues are one of the leading causes of death. It are the leading is the leading cause of death for women and that women don't have that Hollywood heart attack, that we have very different symptoms, including I've heard things, nausea, vomiting, intense fatigue. And women are routinely sent away and have been sent away even from emergency departments. So these gaps 
can literally have life and death consequences. I really, I think that most people don't realize what you said about the drug testing, you know, everything from aspirin to some of the other medications that we would take, cold medications have not been tested on women. And we have more unexplained symptoms and reactions to drugs than men. 75% I've read of adverse drug reactions happen in women. So our listeners have to realize exactly what Heather said. Having these gaps has real consequences on our healthcare and our outcomes. So now, Heather, I want to jump into some of the things that we are working on here at Women's to really close these gaps and talk about some of the things that make a difference in people's lives. So let's talk about breast cancer. We've talked a little bit about cardiovascular disease and the different symptoms that women have that are often overlooked. But breast cancer is another area where we have a lot of issues in terms of early detection and whatnot. So can you talk a little bit about why we need to focus on things like breast cancer and improve the research that's being done in that area so that we can improve outcomes for women? Yeah, Jennifer, breast cancer is a great example of that. And, you know, although it is a disease that mostly occurs in women, but not exclusively, it's and gender nonconforming individuals, you know, when we when we think about um, other intersectional aspects of it, so if you're a Black woman, if you're a Muslim woman, if you're an Indigenous woman, right. then you're really less re- represented. Um, so although the research is done on women, it's not necessarily been done yeah. um, on on diverse women. So we, we see that for Black women, for example, 41% um, are more likely to die of breast cancer than white women. That's shocking. I think all of us would agree. And I would agree. And I want to talk a little bit about this because I think people think, while we have universal health care, why would the, be, there be such a disparity in, in, in death in, in, by breast cancer? We can all go for mammograms. We can all have our tests. What can we talk about here to explain the disparities in terms of in the death rates for something like cancer between black and white women? Yeah, I mean, the healthcare system has been really set up for white privileged people, right? Yeah, I mean, if we all know that if we've had anybody in the hospital of late, you really need an advocate there. Right. But when you think about other cultures, um, other ways of engaging with the healthcare system, it it just doesn't work for people. So it's really an access issue. We we call this access to healthcare, and so access needs to be set up individually for different. Um, different groups. So for black women, for example, we need to understand what the barriers are to accessing mammography, for example. And then we need to change the way we're um, engaging black women so that they do come for a mammogram. And every group um, is going to have a slightly different way. And, you know, we are a very colonial system in healthcare and it, by its nature, has, you know, institutional systemic racism. So um, until we actually start to peel away some of those barriers and truly understand how it will work for Black women, Indigenous women, Muslim women, then we'll never see those disparities go away. Yeah. And I think that you've hit on two things there. Like one is that we actually don't have a lot of information on how to reach these communities so they don't come in Two, systemic issues have, you know, historically, these groups have very sometimes poor experiences when they do come into the hospital. 
And there has to be literacy on both sides. Both, I think we did a, an amazing job during COVID, you know, increasing literacy around the vaccine, but that same literacy needs to happen in other areas so people can be more comfortable. And also, I think the piece around representation, which we're going to dig into a little bit more, you know, when you walk into a hospital and no one looks like you, um, it's very, it can be very intimidating. And I think that that's such an important point. You know, we have some programs here at Women's that are unique uh, and really support our, you know, our ethos around having representation. Um, we have a wonderful partnership uh, called Every Breast Count with in, in partnership with the Black community, which has really changed the experience here. And we have a new virtual hub I know that we're very proud of. Can you talk about as a CEO why you thought it was important for us to sort of take a, a role in, in this area? Yeah, absolutely. And just to talk about representation, hospitals, healthcare systems need to represent the communities that we're serving. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, you know, that so it, at all levels of the organization, um, leadership, clinicians and, and everybody, because, as you say, people want to see um, and understand. And, you know, how are we going to create these programs with a equity lens? for cancer screening, for example, unless um, we have people who who understand it and, of course, engaging the individuals themselves. Yeah. Lived experience is so important. We've talked about this many times, you know, understanding how somebody gets to the hospital uh, impacts, you know, how you set up, you know, the appointments. You know, our mental health division here has a daycare so people can bring children with them so that they can keep their appointments. Um, there are some other things that we do here that are really, uh, you know, special and, and help to remove barriers like our virtual care uh, to make sure that we can reach people. But one of the things I think that we need to get through to people is that prevention and we are the hospital built to keep people out of hospital is so important. And we've really made an investment in making sure people feel that they can come into our hospital and get that preventative um that preventative test or exam that they need. Exactly. Okay, we're going to switch gears a little bit and we're going to talk a bit about envisioning a healthcare system that has, you know, the researchers that we need to really transform it. So let's first talk about some of the disparities in who's showing up as researchers uh, in our healthcare system. Do you want to talk about what the sort of state of research is right now and what we are trying to do to move that forward? Yeah. And uh, we talked a little bit earlier about representation in hospital um, leadership, clinicians, et cetera. And I mean, the same happens at a national level when you look at who are the you know, recipients of things like, you know, Canada research chairs. Um, and then when you look at um racialized individuals or people with disability, the the individuals that are doing the research are very poorly represented when it comes to diversity. So, I mean, that's, that's an area where we can really make some breakthroughs. But, you know, I often think um, an example for me when I think about how does, you know, embracing research in a hospital, um, you know, really change and transform outcomes for people. Um, Long term, I think about gestational diabetes. Um, You know, all of you probably know and have heard of or may have had yourself gestational diabetes, uh, fairly common with pregnant um, women. And um, it was through research done here through one of our clinician scientists, Dr. Uh Lorraine Lipscomb, who actually started to question how many of the women with gestational diabetes actually 
um, went on to develop diabetes um, because it was always, I mean, I know when I was pregnant, it was always, you know, once you, once you finished your pregnancy, that you were gone, it was gone. But in fact, research shows that 20% of women will go on to develop diabetes within 10 years. So that's shocking when you think wow. about that's a shocking number. All of, yeah. Um, the impacts that diabetes has on somebody's health. So we, we've taken on another study to, to look at how can we best impact these women mm-hmm. so that they don't go on, in fact, to develop diabetes. And we have what's called the ADAPT um, program, which is a study. And so we're working with uh, women in the diabetes uh, program, the gestational diabetes program around um, making, um, you know, lifestyle choices. And again, this is where um, intersectionality really comes to play because Mm -hmm. access to healthy food, access to exercise, all of those things um, cost. And even the time to be able to do those things. So really thinking creatively and innovatively about what would work and then evaluating whether in fact it is working. So are women able to make the change and sustain it so they don't go on? And that's why the evaluation is so important because we do a lot of things based on population health. And in theory, it should work. But then, as you've said, it doesn't actually reach people. Um, You know, when you live in a small town or you live somewhere remote or you live in a, a big city, but you have to take transit everywhere, you don't have the same access as everybody else. And I think that that's so important for everybody to remember that you know, the healthcare system has to work for everyone or it truly isn't equitable. That's actually where virtual care has really been a game changer in healthcare um, because there's many right. aspects of care that actually can be done very well. And in some in some instances, superior care can be done virtually when you think about access for someone. If you're a new mom and you have, you know, postpartum depression and you need counseling, but you live in a small town and you have a baby, like think about the barriers there to actually getting to, in to see, to come to a place like Women's College. So that's why we've made many of our programs virtual. So um, people can do it in the comfort of their own home. And, or um, if they are able to come into the hospital, and you mentioned it earlier, how can we provide childcare for people so that um, you don't have to look to uh, pay for expensive childcare? So it's thinking about each, um, each of these areas um, with that equity lens and what would improve access for, for individuals to actually get the care that they need. All right. Well, I want to switch gears because you've you've done a beautiful segue. So, you know, a lot of people think that virtual care replaces in-person. And I always, you know, I explain it to my 80-year-old mother all the time. It's a compliment because my 24-year-old son loves virtual care. He loves having those online appointments or phone calls with his doctor. It frees up the time, I tell my mom, so that she can come in to see her doctor if she needs to. And I always say to people, it doesn't replace, it complements. It's so you can get what you need where you need it. It's actually much more, I always tell them, bespoke than just having one way of coming uh, to an appointment, which all roads lead to coming to the hospital, which again is a very privileged sort of attitude to have that everybody can take the time off work, pay $24 to park, have childcare, you know, have the time, be close enough. And I think you've hit it by saying, you know, it really gives access where we didn't have it before. We were one of the first hospitals to say it is absolutely necessary. And I think COVID proved that it has its 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 value. And again, we're evaluating that and make sure, making sure that it lands for everybody. 
Well, I'm going to switch gears a little bit to some of the advocacy and sort of, you know, human rights work that we've done, you know, particularly about around improving access to things like abortion care. We've also, you know, set up our our, our clinics for around substance use. And I want you to talk a little bit first about perhaps what we've done in the abortion care area, um, because I think it's so important. And, and you know, right on topic these days um, and the leadership role we've played there and continue to play. Yeah. And I mean, I think we we can't underestimate um, or take for granted um, the importance as importance of access to reproductive um, health care for women, um, as we know from our neighbors to the south. So, you know, um, We've always been a leader in the space at Women's College Hospital. And, you know, about five years ago, Mifepristone was approved. So this is um, having an abortion um, by taking um, medication. Um, so not a surgical, like not having to come into the hospital to have a surgical procedure. Um, you can have it in the comfort of your own home. When the uh, pandemic started, we were leaders in creating what we call the no-touch abortion, where you didn't even need to come into the hospital. So you could have a phone call or a video visit with a provider. And then this prescription was sent to your pharmacy and you went to your pharmacy, you picked it up and you went home and you went through with the procedure. So, I mean, really transforming the way and the barriers for people, um, making it as easy as and accessible as possible. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's another option and another choice for women um, in the space. As substance use, you you touched upon, and you know it's again something where we really um, worked on access for people. So we know people with substance use when they actually want help or signal that they're interested in help, they're often um, referred to a program that could take weeks or months um, to get access to. So our rapid access addiction medicines program, we uh, committed to seeing people in the moment that they needed help and wanted help. And so this really meets people where they're at when when they're ready. And then we started off very small with seven programs across the hospital or across the province with um, affiliated with emergency departments. And then uh, we've scaled up um, and we're up in the 75 range across the province. So, you know, this was an area where not many providers had a lot of expertise. And through this program, we're really uh, being that kind of central, um, you know, central knowledge hub for um, continuing to um, advance the understanding and the treatments for people with substance use. Thank you, Heather. You've really helped really illuminate some of the gaps, um, some of the things that we need to change in the system. And some of the ways Women's College Hospital is working to do that in partnership with many of our other hospitals and the research that we're going to do that is absolutely borderless. So thank you so much. Thank you, Jennifer. Now, I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Aisha Lofters. Dr. Lofters is a family physician and scientist at Women's College Research Institute, the chair in implementation science at the Peter Gelkin Center for Women's Cancers at Women's College Hospital and an associate professor at the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. Dr. Lofters has spent her career researching cancer screening, prevention, and race-based health research, which has been internationally recognized. Dr. Lofters, great to have you here. And I'm really excited to be talking about a topic that's probably not covered nearly enough, which is discrimination and some of the ways that it shows up within the healthcare system. Uh, particularly for people who have what we call multiple 
intersectionalities. And so what do we want to talk about when we talk about those many identities? Can you first of all start with what makes a person more complex in healthcare? So it's funny, Jennifer, we use that term complex a lot in healthcare. And I think sometimes we use that term because the person has multiple uh, complex health conditions, which makes it tricky to pick the right medication or think of the right treatment. But sometimes we use the word complex when what we really mean is that the person has multiple social identities, each of which on their own can lead to barriers and systemic discrimination. But when they're added together, um, a woman of color, a woman who is an immigrant, a person um, who has a different gender identity and also has a physical disability, once you add these different social identities together, we use the term complex. Um, and they are, but they're complex because of the system that we have created and the discrimination that's inherent. Right. Not in of themselves, like each of those different identities are just making them who they are. Exactly. But we act like they make them more difficult. It's almost like complex and difficult. There's a relationship between them. And I think that the way you explained it beautifully. So we know that when people have these multiple intersectionalities or identities that what happens to them when they enter the healthcare system is not the same outcome that might happen for a person that's from what we might consider um, the dominant society or a white person versus a black person. And one of the stats that I heard that blew me away is that black women are 43% more likely to die from breast cancer than white women. And I thought to myself, well, how can that be when, you know, everybody technically has access and so I want to talk about some of the the differences in how access and the way the healthcare system was built actually in a way does a disservice to certain groups. So can we talk about how these intersectionalities actually impact your health? Yeah. So that's the thing is that it's not just a theoretical conversation. It is having like a real life impact on people's lives. You just gave two great examples. We see disparities in cancer, in HIV. If you don't mind, I'm going to throw some more stats in the conversation because I think numbers are important, right? So um, when we look at Canadian data specifically, 15% of Black women rate their health as fair or poor compared to 11% for white women. Um, diabetes is twice the rate for Black Canadians versus white Canadians, so that's double. And I think it's important to point out that Black Canadians have lower rates of alcohol use, lower rates of smoking. Because I think often the jump is, well, this is because of bad lifestyle choices. They're just not eating well, they're smoking, they're taking exactly. care of themselves. Right, exactly. But that's not the case. It's not the case, right? So right. It's, a, it's a systemic discrimination that we see playing out in many sectors, including in healthcare, and has a very real impact on people's lives. Wow. Startling, startling statistics. Well, I'm going to throw one more in, you know, so we know that what gets funded often gets fixed for a very simple way of putting it. What gets funded gets research. What gets funded gets, you know, exposed in terms of what it's doing for good or, or for, for not so good. So let's talk about the huge gap in funding. Only 8% of national funding uh, is focused on women's health. And I will gander a guess that a very small fraction of that is directed at intersectional uh, issues in healthcare. Can we talk about, you know, this being almost a self-fulfilling prophecy to keep the systemic issues going forward? And what are some of the things that we can do in terms of that gap, particularly around research for these groups? You know, 
what can we do to get the right data? So you're exactly right, Jennifer, that often what happens is the very first thing that policymakers want, rightfully so, is evidence. So you're telling me that there's a gap. Where's the evidence? Right. So in Canada, we don't collect race-based data and some others still don't because I think there's a misperception that since COVID exposed that there were such disparities in different groups, particularly among Black and Indigenous people, that the light bulb has come on and now we're all collecting and it's all good. But that's not the case. That is definitely not the case. And I will point out that in COVID, it happened after a lots of community advocacy, people really pushing for this in the COVID context. There was an outcry. Exactly. Yeah. But we, we need this across the system because research includes collecting and using that data to understand where there are disparities. Until we have that, it's really hard to convince policymakers to invest money in this. It's it's like a big circle. You don't have the data, you can't get the money. Well, you don't have the money, so you can't get the data. Exactly. Right? exactly. So you can't win. Right. <laughs> All right. So we're going to talk about data because I think, you know, there's a, I think there's a misperception. I'm a Black person. I think there's a misperception that we just don't want to provide data. And I think there's a lack of understanding that data has not always been used for good. It has not always been used to the benefit of certain communities. And that's sometimes one of the factors in terms of people being being open to providing their data. Can you talk a little bit about what I call data hesitancy because of, you know, not a, a lack of wanting help, but also that data not being used in a way that has been helpful? Yeah, exactly. So I think that there certainly is a high level of mistrust among Black and other racialized communities about collecting data and research in general, but that's based on historical fact. So that is based on evidence, right? It's based on previous experience, the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, um, the father of gynecology, uh, experimented on on Afri- enslaved African women without anesthesia. It goes on and on and on. And when it comes to data collection, I think people, anybody would want to know, okay, you're collecting my data. Why? And what are you going to do with it? And I think people are disillusioned by seeing um, data being collected and then nothing is done with it. Nothing happening. I think it's the status quo uh, now. I think that, you know, there are certain safety measures in place, but the experience, um, even I would say the way that questions are asked, they don't take into account intersectionality um, because it's who's asking the question, you know, that ends up being what questions are asked. So I've had friends say to me, they don't even make sense in my context. Like, you know, things like people assume you have access to things in your life that you may not. Like, uh, I know a woman that went for breast cancer surgery and she said they assumed I had something to someone to take care of my children while I was going through this process. So the question of, you know, you know, who should we put down as the you know principal person to contact about your children? She was like, they know nothing about my life. And there's a lack of intersectionality in the questions. So what do you think we should do about, um, you know, earning that trust of um, communities And, you know, there are many communities that have been discriminated against, including women as a whole, to make data collection, you know, more transparent and and more useful. Yeah, I think we have to uh, walk the walk. So I think that means we collect data. We tell people at the time of data collection why we are collecting it, what we're going to do with it 
when they can expect to see how the data have been used. Right. I think we need to feed back to people. Here's what we found. Here's what we're doing about it on a very um, regular basis. And we have to have good data governance. So that means understanding who can access the data. Right. How is the data kept private? But we have to really just show like it takes time. We can't just say we have to show the community that we're doing this properly. Yeah. And I think earning trust like anything takes time. You know, it's not going to be one and done. Mm -hmm. So we're going to switch gears a little bit. Uh, You specialize in cancer. And, you know, we know that uh, breast cancer in particular and other forms of cancer are in the top five of leading causes of death for women. Uh, Breast cancer is the second leading cause for women. And so one of the things I've heard over and over is that, you know, even in the area of diagnosis of things like cancer, because of the disparity in training, particularly around physicians, these things can be overlooked. Can you talk to me a little bit more about how that happens? You would think that people are trained to diagnose cancers, whether skin or other types of cancers in all people, but apparently that's not the case. It's not. Um, and I think traditionally in the medical school world, there's the approach has been to normalize and center on whiteness. And in such a multicultural, such a multiracial world, we can't be doing that anymore. So often what has happened in the past is you learn in detail, for example, with skin cancers or other dermatological conditions, you learn about it on white skin, and then maybe you get a perfunctory Oh, but in dark skin, it looks like this. Oh, or in people of color, it presents this way. As an afterthought. Right. You can't do that anymore. Like it was never acceptable. But now I think in 2022, like change needs to happen. And we need to be able to recognize how do things present in people across all shades of color, across all body sizes, um, you know, because that's our population. We're not just here to treat some people. Particularly in the large urban centers, you know, there are people coming. We're a country, you know, that focuses on immigration to replenish ourselves. And so we have people from all over the world with all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of skin colors. And it's surprising, I think, that in 2022, 2023, that in medical school, we are really still focused on one skin type when we know that that does not represent the population. So one of the things that, you know, people ask is, you know, as people are going through medical school, and maybe you can talk about your experience, um, you know, we have more and more black doctors, not nearly enough, but more and more black doctors, more and more women going through medical school, but the actual training hasn't changed that much. What do you think we have to do to sort of have that trickle down to the training? Like, you know, is there an opportunity for medical students to, to weigh in when they don't see this? I mean, is it is it difficult to, you know, speak up and say, hey, how come only five minutes on darker skin? I'm just wondering. So I will say, I think the um, I don't want to make myself sound too old here, but the young people of today are really amazing because that is happening in the medical schools. They are starting to speak up. They're starting to question. They're starting to really push for that social determinants of health lens to be incorporated into the medical schools. And change is coming. Um, it's not happening. It's not done today, but I think it is It is starting because we need um, people in all positions of power to be representative of the populations that they serve. So that includes people who are making the medical school curriculum and includes people who are teaching at the medical schools, um, as well as the future doctors. And we're starting to see that. But we really need to have change at all of those levels to ensure that what we're doing is impactful. So it's not just about Um, bringing in more students of color, but making sure that they are empowered and that people in positions of power are also representative. Yeah, because I think it goes back to our earlier point where we were talking about
about the funding. You know, if only 8% of funding is directed at women's issues and we're 51% of the population, it shows that just having the numbers doesn't actually change the system. It has to be intentional. It has to be purposeful. And you have to have policy and follow up uh, in order to make those things happen. So let's talk a little bit about Um, the next area that I want to talk about is policy. So you work as sort of because you're both, you know, your parents must be so proud, doctor, (laughs) and you have your PhD. Um, You know, I want to talk a little bit about policy and how the work you do, whether it's in cancer or any of the other areas that you touch on, you know, how do you affect policy uh, uh, on the margins, like for people centering on the margins? What are the kinds of things that you do? I know here at Women's College Hospital, um, we've recently set up a website for for Black women and women of color for their breast cancer journey. And that's a great model that others can follow. Um, and there are other things we do. What do you like to see in the area of policy, particularly in cancer, uh, as we go forward? Yeah, I think what's important in policy is just the term that you use, Jennifer, which is centering on the margins. Often what happens in policy and clinical practice is we um, we center on the center. So the people who are most privileged, um, who have the most access, we create a system that works for them. And then for those on the margins, they get left further and further behind. And then after the fact, we'll often go back and try to figure out how we can come up with something for them. But I, I really believe that if we center on the margin, so that means creating policies, practices, initiatives that are really tailored and targeted to people who have been marginalized, that after we do that, the trickle-down effect will be a system that certainly works for those who are already um, already empowered because they will also be able to easily have access to those types of systems. Can you give me an example? I mean, it sounds very um, idealistic to say that if you center on the margins, I think for most people you think, well, it's population health, right? If you center on everybody, everybody benefits. But I've also heard the reverse, that if you solve for the people on the margins, actually everybody benefits. So can you give like an example of maybe how we've used, you know, centering on the margins to maybe figure something out in healthcare or how it's how those that way of approaching healthcare works better than just centering on everybody? So I think, uh, you know, you mentioned the Every Breast Counts website, which is a website initiative that we co-created um, with Black women who had been on their breast cancer journey, right? specifically for back Black women. So it's not um, a website, for, to be honest, for any woman with breast cancer with a subsection for, women, for Black women. The target audience is Black women with breast cancer. Right. Any woman could go to that website uh-huh. and get information that's going to be up-to-date and accurate and evidence-based when it comes to risk factors, when it comes to lifestyle, when it comes to information about cancer screening, the cancer journey. So anyone can benefit from that information. But what we heard so often from Black women is that they felt excluded on their breast cancer journey. The pictures they saw, the doctors couldn't answer questions about their skin healing or about keloids. Things that that other other cultural groups and ethnicities would not not even know about or perhaps ask. It wouldn't impact them. Exactly. Exactly. You're going to events where there was no makeup that was for them. There were no wigs that were for them. So they ended up feeling horribly about themselves. So, I mean, it's, a, it's an example of what we're doing here, that it's it's very unequivocally focused on the Black community, but it has benefits for everyone. But what we're doing here is trying to narrow that gap. So, Let's talk a little bit about, you know, the prevention journey and that intersectionality, particularly in something like cancer. So we've talked a little bit about 
um, you know, black women and black people generally have lower, lower. Uh, we don't smoke as much. They don't um, drink as much. But also I've heard they don't come in for their their screening as much. They don't come in for that prevention as much. Let's talk about a little bit about how, you know, some of the discrimination stops people from seeking the care they need. And what I've heard is that here at Women's, we often see women with very progressed breast cancer in particular because they've not, you know, really come in for their screening and not really understood or or felt that they were going to have a good experience being screened. So that ties back into what we were discussing before about mistrust, which is not just uh, for research, but also can be for the healthcare system. So for some people, a hospital can be a very traumatic place based on either their previous experiences or family members or friends' experiences. They don't trust the health system. Um, don't expect to go to the doctor and have a good outcome. Worry about how they'll be perceived. Will they be perceived uh, as aggressive or for asking for too much? And I heard this particularly around HIV. After I heard that horrific stat of 70% of the new HIV cases being in Black women, I had to do a little bit more research because it seems so out of sorts for me. And what I learned was it's predominantly in heterosexual women. Um, it's not, you know, it's not uh, in the what people th- traditionally think as the, the gay community. I think a lot of Black people had that perception. But what I read even more about was that when women went into the doctors to talk about possibly having HIV, uh, one of the quotes I read, they were felt like they were considered spreaders, not patients. And this idea that, you know, how they were perceived um, really impacted whether or not they wanted to, to get care. So I would assume that it would be the same uh, even for breast cancer, although it's a slightly different situation. You know, they don't feel welcome into the system. They don't feel uh, that they're going to be treated well. And we hear this a lot with Indigenous people as well. And that really prevents them from coming in. So I'm sure you've had an amazing response to the new website. Can you talk about some of the uh, women who've used the uh, new breast cancer website for Black women? Any of the any of the feedback that you've gotten on that? We have received really great feedback, and I think a key part of that is because I women saw that it was co-created. So it it very clearly states that it was developed with a group of Black women. So. There is that inherent trust that comes right away that the people who developed this have a similar life experience, at least when it comes to race and gender, and understand where I'm coming from. We worked really closely with a group called the Olive Branch of Hope, which is a community organization, and they've been doing such a great job spreading the word, getting into the community. But I think it's that piece that people can say, okay, you know what, you really were thinking about me when this was created. So we've been receiving really great feedback. So one of the things I love about what we do here in your work at Women's, it is about building a community of support. It's not about having everything here at Women because we know that particularly uh, for the Black community, Indigenous community, and even people that live in small towns, you know, coming into a big city, coming downtown, it's not always accessible to them. So what are the benefits you really see of partnering with people uh, outside of the hospital that really helps your work sort of be scaled beyond our walls? So I I really think that community, like there's experts, right? So when I'm doing a research project that involves statistical analysis, I get a statistician because that's their expertise. So if I want to develop a project that's going to have impact on the community, 
you've got to have people from the community with lived experience because that's their expertise. So I view it as we all bring our strengths to the table. And if you don't have community partners, then you're really missing something at your table if you want to have community impact. You need to have the people who are out there every day you know, living everyday lives and who can understand what that experience is like. All right. So my final question is, you know, with the work that you do, particularly in cancer, where have you seen, you know, sort of the the biggest change or advance? What are you excited about in this area that where the gap might be closing? And then finally, where do you think we need to do some work? You know, the most exciting thing I would say is the fact that we are now openly having conversations about race in Canada. When I started out my career, a lot of my work focused on immigrant health, which is also um, a passion of mine. But one of the reasons is because the conversation about race was just not happening. We were too polite to talk about race. Nobody wanted to talk about it. And it's been so empowering, I think, to see that shift and to see all of these conversations happening where people now are talking about collecting race-based data. They're talking about looking at racial disparities. They're talking about trying to address racial disparities. So I think that's been the thing I'm most excited about, but there's so much work yet to be done. And we need more researchers because such a small percentage of, you know, researchers are from many of the intersectionalities that we talked about. So just having more voices at the table, I think would be helpful. And so what are you, what are you hoping for? What are you excited about in terms of the future? So you've seen this big shift, more people are talking about it, but where do you want it to go? Well, as you said, I think we need more Black and racialized physicians, researchers, clinician scientists, um, you know, policymakers. We need people at all of those different levels bringing those voices to the various tables. And then I think what we need to be doing is having some targeted research that focuses on racialized communities when it comes for me, cancer care. Others will have different areas of focus. But in Canada, we're so behind when it comes to this targeted research that we need to do it to describe and then be able to try interventions to address those gaps. So on the policy front, you think that we need to do a lot more work. We need a lot more advocacy around like policies around like things like we were talking about, the data collection, making sure that, you know, perhaps every research project has to have, you know, the right questions to make sure that they include all that intersectionality. And then we probably need to have more policy around using the data. Exactly. Uh, is that is that something that you would say that we have to push for? And is there a way that we can do that as patients? Is there a way that we can ourselves be advocates? I think as with any political issue, the more voices there are that are, are pushing for something, the more likely is that policymakers are going to listen in whatever avenue that might come. I push for it as a clinician, as a researcher. I think people can push for it as, as patients and citizens. Uh, but we really need to start recognizing and addressing these changes across policy, across research and across clinical practice. All right. Well, Dr. Lofters, you know, speaking to you is always wonderful. Thank you for the work that you're doing. It makes such a difference to have all the intersectionalities and all the different types of researchers and policymakers at the table so we can move forward. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Mind the Health Gap. If you'd like to learn more, please check out the other episodes of Mind the Health Gap wherever you get your podcast. Visit us at womenscollegehospitalfoundation.com and stay up to date with us on our social media platforms.